first rule of how to tell a great story. Aristotle outlined all the essential rules for storytelling in his Poetics, but at what point does breaking the rules make for great works? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. You can now find us, along with our free newsletter, at classicalwisdom.substack.com. Today's Classical Wisdom Speaks podcast is with Philip Freeman, Professor of Humanities and Fletcher Jones Chair of Western Culture in the Humanities Teacher Education Division at Seaver College of Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Philip is author of many interesting and diverse books, including his recent How to Tell a Story, an Ancient Guide to the Art of Storytelling for Writers and Readers, which is a highly readable new translation of Aristotle's Poetics. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classicalism Society members who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.substack.com and subscribe. Now, on to plot, character, and the possibility of ever analyzing literature objectively. Well, first, I wanted to talk about your book on how to tell a story, which yeah. is just a fantastic title. I think it's um, something everybody should learn how to do. And uh, you know, you'll be better off at dinner parties. People will like you more. You know, it's just it's it's a first good rule in life. Um, and so uh, what is actually one of the first rules and how to tell a story? Oh, Aristotle has a lot of really good rules, but one, one of my favorites is so simple, it's, it's almost deceiving. He says every story must have a beginning, a middle, and an end, which you read that and you think, well, obviously, yes, but uh, so often authors or, or screenwriters will, uh, will just fade away at the end or not really know how to begin or sort of muddle through the middle. Uh, and so just keeping that very simple idea in in mind, I think it's probably the best way to begin. And, uh, you know, but that's so funny because nowadays people like not necessarily having so much structure in a story. I mean, I think of a lot of great TV shows and the ending is almost like another beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, just because Aristotle makes up these rules doesn't mean we have to follow them, certainly, uh, all the time. There are, you know, wonderful stories, wonderful movies that don't you know, follow chronological order uh, at all. So I think Aristotle would probably be very accepting of those. Uh, but he's just laying out some basic rules in general uh, that uh, that he thinks authors should follow. And do you have any other great insights from Aristotle on how to tell a story, the structure of stories or poetics in general? Well, uh, lots of them. <laughs> I mean, he, he says, <laughs> it's a big question, I realize. Yeah, he says, you know, he, he says some things again that sound simple, like every story has to have an appropriate length, uh, which I think is important. I mean, you want you don't want to make it too small. It can be small. You can make like a, a short story or a, a five minute film like Pixar does. Uh, those are wonderful. Uh, or you can make a long sweeping Lord of the Rings epic, uh, but it has to be appropriate to that particular story you were telling. Uh, so he's, he's very much uh, on point uh, with that. Uh, he says also a rule that authors um, uh, often don't follow is they, they don't, and, and again, this, this sounds like elementary school, but make an outline first. Yeah, know where you're going. I mean, I've talked to so many authors and I understand this. You say, well, I just want to let the story take me where I will. 
Uh, and so, you know, that can be great if you're amazingly talented, uh, but uh, it, in general, it's a good idea to know where you're going before you begin. And so basic, simple stuff, uh, you know, make an outline, just like I tell my students when they're writing a paper, uh, it really works. Yeah, my husband's an author, and when he writes novels, they're very specific, like this chapter, I'm going to do these things, and these are some of the takeaways, and these are some of the themes, right. and you know, you really have to, the more structured, sometimes in advance, the better you can get as a whole product rather than segments. Well, absolutely, and it doesn't mean that you can't, like, if you think of something great, you know, change it, uh, you know, change your outline, uh, but, uh, but he likes, he likes structure, he likes order, he really does. How Aristotelian of him. <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting, though. I mean, he, he has a lot of, like you said, they're almost like elementary school. They're like the first things that we can think of when when breaking and creating a, a story um, and, and writing poetic poetry, anything, literature. Um, and, and, and it's so wonderful that people can use this as, as a structure, as a guideline. Uh, but as I was saying before, I mean, is there a point when literature in some ways progressed the second it rejected Aristotle's rules? Well, people were rejecting Aristotle's rules, you know, when the ink was still uh, wet on the papyrus. Uh, so they were doing it from the very beginning, even before Aristotle's rules. There were some great stories that were being told uh, that did not follow it. But I mean, whether or not whether or not you think you know literature has progressed uh, is sort of depends on your point of view. You know, you read James Joyce, you read Ulysses, you read Dubliners, uh, and you know he does incredible, wonderful things uh, with uh, with stories and and with uh, point of view and with uh, just you know uh, non chronological events and things like that. So. I, I kind of, you know, maybe I'm just old fashioned, but I resist the idea of, of seeing that necessarily as progress. I see it as a different way of telling a story. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, and there are plenty of superb writers out there, filmmakers who, you know, know Aristotle and they say, that's great. I'm not going to follow those rules. Uh, and they make, you know, wonderful films, tell wonderful stories uh, without, uh, without doing that. But I personally think that, you know, if you want to learn how to write, if you're a beginning author, start off learning some rules, start off learning some basics. And then when you, you know, get competent at it, then break the rules. Uh, that's a, a good idea, I think, probably for anybody who's in, in any particular skill. Yeah, I always like to point out when people talk about modern art, for instance, you look at Picasso, I mean, you look at his early paintings, they're very, very different from his later paintings. I mean, it's in or Edvard Monk or I mean, many of those artists like they knew how to paint first. So right. then you knew that the styles that they were doing was purposeful, not because of lack of ability. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, though I, I do like you mentioned James Joyce because we're coming up on Bloomsday very soon and uh, the hundredth year anniversary. So for the Joyce <laughs> fans, this is very exciting. Um, and it is kind of funny then to think of of plot versus character. And you know, this is another point that Aristotle focused a lot on plot. And there's a lot of literature that the character supersedes plot. Um, mm -hmm. Would I mean for Aristotle? Was he being proscriptive or descriptive of the best works? 
Well, I think he was actually being proscriptive. Uh, you know, I think he was saying that, you know, if you want to be a good writer, if you want to tell a good story, make sure you have plot first. And that doesn't mean that character is not important. And I've read, you know, people responding to Aristotle and saying, you know, Aristotle doesn't think character is important. No, absolutely. That's not true. He just thinks plot is primary. You have to have plot first. Other, otherwise, in his opinion, you know, you can have some excellent characters who are just sort of wandering around doing stuff and nobody's really quite sure what's going on, uh, which actually can make a very good story. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's his opinion anyway, that plot comes first, then you develop your characters. And again, there are lots of people who disagree with that, uh, who say that's not true. But for Aristotle, this is the side that he's taking. Yeah, I felt like you were just describing an Ibsen play there for a second. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so what would he have thought about the Odyssey or ones that had the non-sequential timelines? I mean, even in his own time period, I mean, the Odyssey, of course, was considered one of the greatest books even back then. Uh, right. If he's trying to be proscriptive and he, he outlines the rules that would go against one of the greatest novels, right. I mean, storytelling. How did that square then and even now? Well, I mean, Aristotle was a huge fan of Homer, and it's a number of times in the poetics he sets Homer up as, you know, this, this is, uh, he's a master. But I think, you know, when he's looking at the Odyssey or the Iliad, I think he's looking at it a little bit differently because those stories are so big. Again, we're dealing like Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, sort of length of stories. And so when you have the Odyssey switching back and forth, uh, between Ithaca, between uh, Odysseus, you know, wandering around the Mediterranean. Uh, I, I don't think that bothers Aristotle because it's such a long story. What he has in mind, especially when he's writing the poetics, is drama, which is, a, you know, a Greek drama like Oedipus Rex, something that lasts maybe an hour and a half. And so he's saying with that particular length of story, uh, you, you, you need to have structure, you need to make plot central, uh, and you you need to, to make it compact enough. I, th I think, you know, he would, he's absolutely fine uh, with the, the Odyssey and the Iliad, uh, like they are bouncing around. And it's so interesting with say Oedipus Rex or Tyrannus, that the, that so much of the plot happens before it even begins. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's all revealing. And, and that's the wonder of the story. And, and of any story like that is that you're finding out what goes along. Of course, the audiences knew the story before they ever watched it. So that helps a lot. And audience is, you know, obviously incredibly important. If you, if you have a, an audience who knows James Joyce, or whoever, you know, up and backwards and forwards, uh, then you can, you know, start at a different point uh, than you would for just general readers. I think if you're going to find that audience, it's going to be in Dublin on Bloomsday <laughs> and nowhere else in the world. <laughs> I think so, probably. No, you know, so it's interesting. Does Aristotle speak specifically about audience and also about audience having prerequisite knowledge? Because, I mean, in a sort of multicultural world now, it, it would be much harder to ever have an audience that you could guarantee. And it's it's funny not to like keep harping on about Joyce, but I was rereading some in anticipation because we're going to Dublin for Bloomsday. So, you know. Yay. Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I was reading Dubliners again and the to read the notes, it was very comical because some of them were written for people who literally must have had no knowledge 
of Catholicism, you know, they're sure. like, this is the Virgin Mary. I'm like, okay, well, sure. I don't, I didn't need to read that note. I know who the Virgin Mary is. Now, right. So, it, and I'm still need to know a lot about it, but so just to say that nowadays it's, it's really impossible to ever have a, co- a full audience that will know all the references uh, and how important would that have been in storytelling historically? I think it was, was really important. I mean, the one thing I tell my students is when they read Oedipus Rex, when they read the Odyssey, the audience knew all of this already. They knew the basics of the story. So you, you, uh, you could assume a lot of knowledge, whereas you can't nowadays. You know, if, if I'm writing a story, telling a story, uh, explaining something to my students in front of a university lecture, I cannot assume that they've all read Huckleberry Finn or, or, or whatever. Uh, they, you know, the, the sort of basic background knowledge. Uh, and so I, I think it really is very important for storytelling uh, to keep an audience in mind, to keep that audience's knowledge in mind. If you're writing a, a, a book nowadays and you're aiming at 20 something, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would know where to begin. Uh, I would have to you know, bone up on, on video games and, 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 and such things to, uh, to tell a great story. Um, but for Aristotle, uh, I, I think he's, he's writing for um, audiences who knew Greek stories very well. I sometimes like to think of a comparison for that type of understanding the larger stories um, to say the Batman movies. Like that's probably one of the few things that you can like watch a Batman movie and, you know, older generations and younger generations, most people kind of know where you are in the cycle, the kind of the overall arc of of the characters or, you know, some of the other Marvel ones, maybe a little bit more, but Batman, maybe Superman, like everybody knows that's kryptonite. That's bad. You know, there's, there's (laughs) Gotham. And I mean, the the thing I can find with my university students is Harry Potter. They all grew up reading Harry Potter, watching the movies. So that is an assumed knowledge that I can make. Whereas if I mention Homer, sometimes they will just look at me like, you know, who's that? Uh, So you you always have to think about audience. In my generation, Homer people would have at least saw the Simpsons. Yes, of course. Um, now, I, I noticed that you've also written about Sappho, um, and I'm a big fan. I, I actually wrote a children's book about Sappho as well, oh. So uh, and about the, the lost poems and um, the brothers' poems and, and such. So uh, I was curious to w- what Aristotle had to say about Sappho. You know, as far as I can remember, and Aristotle wrote a lot, I, I don't think he ever really talks about Sappho uh, very much. He would have known her. Uh, and, and other authors, Plato and, and others uh, mentioned her certainly, uh, but uh, we don't know what he thought uh, about Sappho. And I think the reason is, uh, is because just in this particular book, The Poetics, the, the, the title doesn't really hold what it means exactly. Uh, when we think of poetics, we think poetry, uh, we think of lyric poetry, uh, short poems. That's not what Aristotle is talking about. He's really talking about bigger stories. And so when Sappho writes a a lyric poem that maybe takes up a a page of papyrus, uh, that's not what he's talking about uh, at all. And so Sappho is is doing something completely different. 
from what uh, Aristotle is talking about, uh, from what Sophocles is doing in Oedipus Rex. Uh, it's a very, very different style of writing and a, a very different style of storytelling. And Sappho writes some amazing stories in those short little poems. Uh, she's just incredible, stunning, one of the best poets ever uh, in history. Uh, but, uh, but it's not exactly what Aristotle's talking about. It's so interesting, though, to, to kind of remind people that the word poetics has such a different meaning in the ancient world than what it does today. And that the style of, of poetry, one thing I often bring up about Sappho, but I think with a lot of the ancients, is that the way we consume poetry nowadays is so individualistic. You know, we, we imagine somebody like sitting in some attic window with the rain beating, pouring their heart <laughs> and soul. And then likewise, somebody by a fireplace, dramatically reading it by themselves. Um, mm. But the idea of poetry in the ancient world was much more community-based. It was more about reading it out together, about festivals, about cultures. Sure. And, and as you were saying about audiences too, um, does, does Aristotle talk ever about the kind of community-ness of poetry? Not really. Uh, he doesn't, at least in the poetics, he doesn't talk about it a whole lot. He, you know, he talks about audience, uh, but it's not something he goes into um, that much. Uh, but all of this, the, the type of storytelling that he's, he's writing about, um, Greek plays, Greek tragedy, Homer, those all, as you say, would have been performances, public performances. Sappho would have been mostly public performances, or at least small group performances. Uh, so you're right, uh, poetry is something very different uh, in the ancient Greek world. And, and they wrote you know, not poems were, you, you could write anything uh, in verse. Uh, Homer is written in verse. Oedipus Rex is written in verse. They wrote medical texts in verse. They wrote erotic, uh, you know, uh, poetry. Uh, you can do anything uh, in verse in the ancient world. Why do you think it was that they wanted to put everything in verse? Was it just, as it was assumed, it just made life nicer? Uh, was it just the language was more lyrical to begin with? I, you know, I, 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 I think that it was aesthetic. I think they, they liked it uh, just in the way, the same way we like songs. Uh, you know, I, I bet most of us who are my age and, and, and uh, you know, have at least 20 or 30 or 50 Beatles songs somewhere uh, in our head. Uh, it, you can remember the lyrics uh, uh, yesterday or, or wherever. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you can remember poetry so much better than you can prose. Uh, it, it, I think that is is a big part of it. Uh, and people in the ancient Greek world, they you know they they knew Homer, they memorized Homer, they memorized Sappho, and it's so much easier to remember things if they are written in verse, just like we can remember songs. So it's sort of more like an oral tradition type thing. Yes. Yeah. I think they were still very much part. Uh, I mean, they just really started to write things down in the 700s BC. Uh, and so they were still very much in that oral tradition. It wasn't that much longer uh, when, when Aristotle uh, was alive, just a, a few hundred years. Well, and even then, I mean, literacy rates would have been much smaller than the audience. So, I mean, you think of medieval time period and churches, you know, you, you use a lot of song mm -hmm. and such to to convert the masses and you know. absolutely 
Absolutely. Poetry, songs, and, you know, the poetry and songs are practically interchangeable in the ancient Greek world. You, uh, they just have more impact. They're easier to remember. Uh, and you know, I can understand why it had such appeal to people. And I think also a lot of people don't realize that a lot of um, those plays were accompanied with music. You yes. know, we, we, we put them on now and we don't, we just make them like a drama. Right. But they're really supposed to be more like musicals. Oh, they are. I mean, everything practically was that was poetry. Po uh, Homer, performances of Homer. You know, somebody would have had a little harp that they were plucking on. Sappho, same thing. Uh, those, those were songs. Uh, they, they really were. You know, we call them poems, and they were, but they were really songs. I wonder what Aristotle would have thought about Bob Dylan then winning the Poetry Award. <laughs> For Nobel Prize of Literature. I don't know. I, I, I like. I, I hoped he would have approved. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so to to talk about your book, um, you've done a new translation then of Aristotle's Poetics, and complete. Why why do you think there's a need for a new translation? Well, I have taught the Poetics. You know, I've been teaching in universities for oh, thirty years. Goodness, I lose track. Uh, I've taught it a number of times and because I think it's just amazing, but students have a hard time reading it. And, and I understand that because the surviving works of Aristotle are basically lecture notes that either he wrote down or his students wrote down. They are a little disjointed. They are a little dry, to be honest. They are, uh, they're, they're sometimes hard to read. And with the poetics, it's even worse because the manuscript history is so jumbled up. Uh, the, the, the text is just a mess. And so what I did, I tried to uh, do a translation that is faithful and yet also is accessible for, for students. And, you know, I, I was thinking of American college students when I wrote this, but it, it, it works for anybody. Uh, and so uh, it, I, I wanted to, I wanted a, a poetics that wouldn't drive people away, that, that, would, you know, that, that they could say, yes, uh, I see what Aristotle is going for. Well, I love that, you know, it's our entire mission at Classical Wisdom is to kind of show the relevance and the accessibility of the classics and how it can kind of improve everybody's day life. I must say, though, it's kind of ironic that Aristotle didn't follow his own notes in poetics, you know, and, and it all jumbled up like, where is the beginning? Where's the middle? Where's the end? The first I notes. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I wish we had some of his surviving works, you know, that, that were finished and polished. Uh, I'm sure they would have been wonderful. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And like, you know, it's it's just astounding to me how much Aristotle did that, that he introduced so many different fields. And, you know, you could take something like the poetics, but then, you know, there's also his introductions to ethics and biology and friendship. And I mean, it's just, it don't stop. I mean, it's amazing. He is. Uh, you know, I've got the collected works of Aristotle up in my bookshelf here, and, and I'm just stunned when I look at, at what he was able to do. I mean, Dante called him the master of all who know, and I think Dante was right. Now, do you think just that that, that sort of scientific mind that Aristotle has, that over analytical, categorical kind of brain that, you know, it just produced so much do you think there is a huge limitation in trying to apply that rationality to something that can be so subjective as poetics and art? 
Sure, sure. I think Aristotle, I think you're right. He had a very scientific, very analytical mind. And maybe that is limiting uh, when, you, when you're looking at something as insubstantial, as intangible as, as art. Um, but I think Aristotle himself would admit that and, and, you know, and say, this isn't the, these are some basic rules, learn them, practice them if you want, and then go forth and, uh, you know, make your own rules if you would like, you know, he actually says something like that, uh, in, in the poetics that, uh, you know, this is just the beginning. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think, uh, we are looking at something that's very logical and very scientific, uh, but he's trying to apply it. Uh, to uh, literary criticism, to uh, poetics, just like he applied it to biology and ethics uh, and, and logic. Yeah, and I, I like what you were saying too before about learning the rules and then breaking them. If you kind of understand the basic principles of what can make good art and you consciously don't do that, then if you're doing that for a reason, to an end, to a purpose, and you're making a point out of it, you know, you're like, it's the sound of the fury or something, <laughs> you know, of course, then, then, then it has much more meaning, but it kind of has to be a conscious decision. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, Sappho is a great example of this. She was a wonderful student of Homer and she takes all of that knowledge and then she turns it into something else. She uses Homeric language. She uses Homeric uh, imagery uh, and makes it, you know, from instead of battling Greeks versus Trojans, makes it the battles of love. Uh, so she does some you know, wonderful stuff. So going beyond, I think Aristotle would have been fine with that. Beautifully said. Well, thank you so much, Philip. And I think um, it sounds like an absolutely fantastic book. Uh, is it already out? It is. It's out in uh, the UK. It's out in America uh, and hopefully uh, elsewhere around the world. Perfect. Okay. Well, I will put links below and make sure everybody knows where they can get a hold of it. And hopefully everybody then can learn how to tell a story. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks. Please go to classicalwisdom.substack.com to learn more about our work and to sign up for our free newsletter. To learn more about Philip Freeman and his excellent books, please go to philipfreemanbooks.com.